This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Morning, Judith. Good morning. How great to see you. Oh, you look fine. I think you're oh, all yeah. over your COVID. I'm younger you... as well. <laughs> <laughs> look, um, we'll, we'll make a start. And before, um, look, I just want to thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, when I we started it, talking... I can get to see you. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we started talking about this, the first name that came to my mind was your name, because I knew that you, you're a great storyteller. You have divergent and interesting thoughts and your career has been really uh, a diverse and interesting one. So, and I had the pleasure of knowing you both in, at UQ, but also working with you at, uh, at Macquarie. And you gave me so many opportunities that I would never have had anywhere else. So this and is a were, personal you're, recognition of- You earned them all, <laughs> believe me. Uh, no, I know it was great. Uh, um, um, thank you for doing that. I. Um, Last night, uh, uh, because of COVID and we got stuck in Western Australia for quite a long time, you could leave, but you couldn't come back. And with all the grandchildren and everything, Claire, Claire wasn't that keen to come back. And so I hadn't really got around to doing much over that period of time. Um, I did get sick and wind up in hospital a few times, but other than that, it was quite boring. So, but now that I've been back here, people like you really asking me to do things. I'm so pleased because... Well, first I get to see you and oh, I get to feel like I'm a human being again. Last night I was at the um, uh, Ramsey Center for Western Civilization. They had, yep. it's about like a mini Fulbright and they had, they're giving people um, scholarships to go abroad to do their PhDs. And this was their kind of big gala dinner. And I was just like, oh, who would be interested in my stories? But hopefully they were, I don't know, they were very kind. So. But they're, they're back where we were when I first came to the Fulbright. It's all Sydney University students going to Oxford. It's like 30 Sydney, you know, and that's what the Fulbright was like, uh, only it was Harvard. <laughs> um, and they need to, I think, spread it around a bit. Um, there's more than one uni here and there's more than one uni uh, abroad. But um, there was anyway, when you go to see the kids like that, Judith, you, all that horrible news in the, that you have to read and watch on TV, sort of disappears, you know the country will be okay when you see these people, you know, you, it's all going to be fine. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. So if, if we start, um, sure. I, I need to start with um, acknowledgement of country and Studiosity acknowledges the traditional Indigenous custodians of country throughout Australia and all lands where we work and recognises their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to elders past and present. I want to mention that I am talking to you on Gadigal land and pay my respects to elders past and present. So when, when I um, wrote to you, I asked you to bring an object to the uh, interview or the conversation that really represents you as an educator and you as a, um, as a leader. So can you tell us what your object is and perhaps even show us? Okay, I will do both. Um, my object is more than one object um, because it's all the library cards that I've collected over a long period of time in different institutions and different cities, um, including the one I started with in New York City when I was just a kid. Um, and because the libraries to me 
was my first real opportunity at education. Um, I, my family, we lived in New York. Um, we didn't have much room at home. I shared a bedroom with my brother. There was no room really for studying or for uh, any, any opportunity to be kind of by yourself. And that's when I discovered libraries and libraries were full of books and I could read them and I could spend the day there. Um, and when I was in school, of course, I could do my homework there and study as well. And so I, I always think of libraries as the, the real reason why um, I got into education in the first place. And I always have this feeling, Judith, that if I ever die, paradise will be something like a library, you know, with books everywhere and paneled walls and hushed tones. And I can be, continue my reading even after that. Um, and I, I, uh, I guess one, one of the, it got, became such a big thing for me that I actually used to visit libraries and I um, go to University College of Dublin just to see the library, you know, and the Bodleian when I was at Oxford and, and things like that. I, I just found that for me that represented education and that represented what I would hope to make available to more or less everybody if they had that opportunity. And then, of course, when you and I were at Macquarie, we built a library and I've never been so proud of anything I've built. Um, but that library. And so um, that's why I brought the cards. Well, um, and in fact, as you were talking, I was thinking of the Macquarie Library, and now I understand the true symbolic value of, of the library in terms of your legacy for Macquarie. I, I truly, I truly love libraries. Yeah. So what was university like for you as an undergraduate and a postgraduate student? Um, I was the uh, first in my family to go to university and, uh, and so didn't really have any strong expectations, uh, having no, no one in the family really to, to give me any advice. Um, but I, I, for me, it was, it was this opportunity to continue the library because I um, chose English as my, my undergraduate major, as you do in the US, you have to have a major. Um, so that I could just keep reading books. <laughs> and, uh, and here was an opportunity to do that. Um, but I slowly, because we got to meet people from all sorts of backgrounds and um, people from different walks of life and different interests, you gradually develop um, not just a circle of friends, but also you widen your interests. So my university experience was one of revelation after revelation, uh, because we also had, of course, this is the liberal arts system where we had to take one Everyone had to do an arts subject and a science subject and a, an art and a fine arts subject. And all of that was fantastic for me. I was only 16 when I began university and I didn't know any of it. Uh, and so for me, university was one great revelation after another. So you, you mentioned um, libraries being important to you. In the sort of digital age, what do you think is the role of libraries now? I still think it's the same role. Um, it's actually just being able to achieve even better um, because now you can reach well beyond the physical building uh, and provide people with more or less the same experience, not exactly the same, but more or less the same experience that they would have had and had to have come to a building, which means you can reach people who don't have access to, to modern libraries. So I believe the digital age has actually enhanced the traditional uh, the, the traditional ability and digital purpose and mission of libraries is actually better now. Um, and people say, well, I like to browse the shelves. Don't realize that you can actually browse the catalogs and modern catalogs, which are kind of 
modeled on Amazon websites and, and so are fantastic because you also can have conversations with other readers. Um, you can share opinions, you can learn in depth, you can get tips about what other things might be of interest to you. So my short, no, my long answer to your short question is I think they're actually better now mm -hmm. than the digital age. But in many respects, when we were students, the library was also a, a, a place for students to have different sorts of adventures. Yeah, I meet girls. Some parts of the library also, that you I, wouldn't go yeah. because you'd think, no, I don't want to see that intimate act. <laughs> uh, I used to like to meet girls in the library, yes. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure that's a negative. <laughs> it's, you know, certainly a, I'm hesitant to make it too much of a positive, but uh, no, I, I think the social aspect of libraries was really good and still is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I, I, I noticed here in Sydney, I, I, I'm in the New South Wales State Library that I, I go to quite often and was on one of their committees for a while, um, that those sort of traditional social engagements still, still occur in the library. Well, it's good that there are some um, things that are consistent then in the uh, digital I'm happy to hear it, yes. So look, you, you told us a, a bit about your undergraduate experience. What about your postgraduate experience? Because you seem to have changed direction in terms of your um, your your uh, your discipline. Well, so I, I, that's a, I'll tell you the long answer. So I like libraries so much when I said that I actually worked, got a job in the New York Public Library um, just after school. So when I was in high school, I worked in the library shelving books doing what we used to call running calls. So going into the stacks, finding books, bringing them up for readers in those pneumatic tubes that they used to have. Um, and um, while I was there, I, I read widely, I met a person called Carl Fenichel, who was a teacher um, and was principal of the League School for Autistic Children um, in New York. And um, he was such a charismatic person and such a, um, uh, a dedicated individual because these were the early days and people really didn't know much about what was going on and he was he just attracted me so that um, I actually got a job kind of helping out so I left the library job and helped out after school with him and when I was in university he you know, he made me a kind of an assistant teacher's job um, and so I, I became more and more interested in psychology and more and more interested in children's um, psychopathology of childhood. Uh, and so I, I just switched, switched blames really uh, and went from English, which was what I was meant to be doing, into psychology and then on to a PhD. And your PhD experience, how, what was that like? Was that? Um, well, mine was great, um, but it's a, uh, probably know that it differs in different countries. The styles differ. Um, and we had coursework is involvement in our PhDs. We had examinations. Um, supervisors tend to be very attentive in the US because they, um, I guess because they're the ones paying you the stipend. Most stipends come from research grants and most PhD students work on the research program of the supervisor. And they have a personal interest in making sure you do stuff. Um, and take credit for some of what you do as well. Uh, but at that same time, you, you feel that you're getting a lot of attention and you come in as a class. There was no such thing as part-time PhD students in, in my day. Um, so everybody was full-time and that 
made it a different kind of experience. It's a more lonely experience now, I think, particularly in Australia, where you're not getting the kind of attention that we got. You don't have a cohort of fellow students who started at the same time and are progressing through the same. There is no coursework. So it's a much lonelier and more difficult experience here. Mine was a very um, group centered experience. And I, I, I only look back at it fondly. Yeah. So what we didn't talk about at the beginning was your uh, leadership roles, both um, at, as a head of department, uh, a dean of a faculty, and then vice chancellor in three universities. Can you just tell us about those different experiences? Because in many respects, you are responsible for delivering excellence in learning as part of your broader portfolio. Yeah, well, to be honest, you learn on the job. <laughs> um, so when, when I was first dean, um, I had no idea really how, how I was gonna cope. I was dean of medicine and I wasn't a doctor. Um, so there was a certain amount of resentment involved that you had to overcome. Uh, and, but gradually you did. Then I became a vice chancellor at Murdoch University in Perth. And I really I had no idea how to be a vice chancellor. And you, you had to, it's one of those weird jobs where you really have to learn by doing. Um, and a lot, it helps a lot if the council are behind you um, and supporting what you do. And it's not really possible to do very much when they're not. Um, so I believe we had a pretty good one at Macquarie. Uh, and we, they gave us a fair amount of latitude and not just me, you too, because um, we, you know, we were thinking about study abroad and having people do things outside the university. Those were your ideas. Um, the fact that they were supported made a huge difference. Um, whereas, in, you know, some of the roles I had, you're not, never quite sure whether the people above you approved or didn't approve. Um, and so I, I think having supportive, uh, a supportive board makes a big difference at the vice chancellor level, but even at the dean's level, having a supportive vice chancellor makes a big difference. Um, and so I, I believe that they, it, it always boils down to people, doesn't it? And what you're gonna get done. Um, in terms of mission and goals, it's sort of traditional really, um, I felt, I don't think anybody else felt that way, but I still thought that the mission of universities um, was to preserve the culture, enhance knowledge, extend knowledge, um, and uh, teach, teach, teach students really, give their students a chance to reach their potential. I still think that, you know, and I, I believe that at some level, I mean, you get caught in the minutia of every day, of course, but at some level, I kept to that. So when, when you, you think about oh. um, where higher education is now, uh, quite different from when, when you were a vice chancellor, what, what do you think are the challenges facing universities, but also facing uh, vice chancellors, particularly now that we've got a new government that's not quite so captive to um, a vocational agenda? Yeah, well, you, it, I think that is a pretty big challenge in Australia um, because we are, how would I would much tinkered with part of the world. They, they, if you look at the constant changes and picking around in universities, politicians tinker with universities more or less continuously in Australia. And it makes it extremely hard because you're almost always off balance, right? Um, you, and you are very um, 
liable to whatever the new political climate can be. So who would have predicted that you would double the cost of a humanities degree? And yet that's what happened. Um, oh, you know, and the explanations are they're not job ready. In, I put that in quotes because most of them get jobs as far as I know. Um, they, and you think to yourself, well, the, when they do that kind of thing, you're having to respond and react all the time. And I find that that's pretty much true of all universities in Australia. They're forever reacting. Um, and that makes it hard for them to take initiative and actually start something. Um, it's because you're at, always reacting. I think that's the hardest job for every manager in every university in Australia is to try to figure out how to stick to the mission when you're constantly being tinkered with. You know, how to say that I'm here to preserve the culture and transmit the culture and extend knowledge. That's where I build character. These are the things I'm here for. Um, and I well, you may try to put everything in dollars and cents and it's all calculated that way. And universities kind of help by publishing these economic impact studies, which nobody really believes, but they keep putting them out there anyway. Um, we bought into the same kind of narrative that they have. So what's the biggest problem facing universities? sticking to their knitting when everybody's always tinkering with it. That's my view. When, when I came to Macquarie and you had um, communicated the Macquarie at 50 vision, it was such a simple vision, but it, it actually empowered people. And you, in that vision, Macquarie at 50 was to be a top university, high quality teaching, an excellent student experience. Every university says that. But you actually transformed Macquarie, or, or in fact, you and I working together transform Macquarie. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, some, sometimes it was as scary as all hell, but other times it was just an opportunity to reimagine universities. So could you just talk to me a little bit more about where that reimagining came from in terms of your experience and your vision? Well, I think, well, some of it came from you, to be honest. Um, and and, um, and it, but it fit what I wanted, what I thought was right as well. Um, I, for a long time, was a director of the Council for International Educational Exchange, and I saw how students benefited from doing something outside of the university and outside of their comfort zone, um, and the growth that they had in self confidence and in self belief. Um, you know, I went to visit a group of students who were learning Arabic in Jordan. And they were in homestays. About half of them were in Muslim homes. For the female students, at least, that's a big challenge because they had to learn the etiquette and when you can be with men and when you couldn't, what, what the family. Um, when those students came back to Sydney, they, they were like, you know, the most self-confident students you were ever going to meet. So like, I did that. Like, this is a piece of cake because, you know, um, when it was very difficult. I mean, even because water is rationed in Jordan, in, in Oman, you can't have a big long shower every day the way you do in Sydney. You can have one every few days and it's a very short one. And all that sort of things, um, I, I believe that growth and character was important. And we added that on. And you didn't have to go overseas for it. There are other ways of doing it. But the fact that we wanted them to do it and that we actually impelled them to do it, um, I believe was a huge change for Australia. I don't think anyone's ever done that before or since. Um, I may be wrong. Uh, and then, but we added to that um, also the, the way we wanted that curriculum to work and we wanted students to be broader and not narrower. Um, I, I, I believe that we're not the only ones who had that vision. Other universities do too. 
but I think we probably pushed it as far as you could in those days. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud that we did it. And I imagine certainly when I meet the students who were there during those years, they're all happy that they went to Macquarie and they all feel that they got what they I believe that we did it. I, I believe that we pushed that vision of um, a fully rounded education as far as you could push it at, in those years. Uh, and I'm proud that we did it. So, when you think about the student experience now, it's quite different from what it used to be. Um, what, what advice would you give to students in terms of getting the most out of their undergraduate degree? Uh, God, I, I, don't know. I, I don't want to give you a terribly difficult answer, but advise them to go see <laughs> um, I, I think that living at home in the bedroom that you lived in when you were a kid um, and spending your whole life there and commuting back and forth to university and holding down a full-time job at the same time is such an impoverished experience of higher education um, compared with students who live on campus and are full-time and become part of the culture of the campus. Now, I know not everyone can afford that and I know that that's not available to everyone. But for those who can, I would encourage them to, many of our students never, never obtain. So what, what do you think a really transformative student experience would be like? Uh, oh, I think the study abroad is the most transformative experience I ever had. And I believe most students would say the same, um, especially if they have to learn to live in another language, which is usually the motivation for going abroad to steep yourself in, uh, in lear and learn a language better. Um, but it also takes you out of your house, your schoolroom bedroom, you know, it gets you out into, the, uh, out into the world. And as we've already mentioned, it gives you self-confidence, it gives you a chance to believe in yourself, test yourself. And of course, you might come home with another language as well. So uh, 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 for me, the study abroad is a very transformative experience. And everyone who's lucky enough to get it really does benefit from it. And I've never heard anyone say anything different. Mm -hmm. uh, now, that could be because the people who go are already that kind of person, uh, and that would be fair enough. But if you can manage it, it's, to my mind, it's the most transformative experience an undergraduate can have. Mm -hmm. Earlier on in our conversation, you talked about the librarian who, who really um, was important in shaping you as a, as a mature learner. Um, have there been other teachers that, you know, you've, you've actually taken some of their experience and trans translated it into your own sort of uh, toolkit as a teacher and as a, uh, an administrator? Well, actually, the Carl Fenisher, who I've seen, he was a teacher, not a, he, I met him in the library. Um, and um, I think he had the most transformative experience uh, for me uh, was him because he influenced pretty much the, the, the direction of the rest of my life. Um, but I'd never even thought before uh, that um, psychology and working with um, school kids and working in schools would be something that I would enjoy doing. And uh, uh, but also, but also because we were doing something that was hard, um, it was difficult, it was raising new grounds. And I found as a young person, I found that very stimulating. So I think probably he, he was most... Um, the second was actually maybe when I was a postgraduate student, 
and I was told I had to learn statistics. And I hadn't really done very much other than undergraduate psychological statistics, very easy. And now these were very hard. And I was very inspired by the professor of statistics because the way he taught was so unusual. He would use examples from bowling and, uh, and sh share markets and all kinds of things that were apparently and on the surface irrelevant, um, but were always fascinating and never irrelevant. And it stuck with me and I got quite good at statistics and I got to like it quite a lot. Uh, and that was beneficial for me uh, in doing my PhD. So I think those were the two that stand out in my mind. Um, but I, it, memories are short and I, over COVID, I decided to learn Italian and I love my Italian teacher. <laughs> um, but she's in Bologna and trying to learn English. And so we do half and half. Um, half an hour in English, half an hour in Italian. I love it. Um, so I've got three. So what did you learn then? What, what did you, what insights did you have then as you as a learner that, that uh, people were able to connect to? I, I, I guess that I'm heavily influenced by teachers and that's always influenced me. The idea that um, it's really the teacher that makes a difference and that teachers, the right kind of teachers for the right sort of person can inspire huge change in those people, um, which is why I wanted to, to get involved in Teach for Australia, um, because we were all concerned that people were going into teaching for reasons that weren't really the right reasons. They might be going because they couldn't get into another course. And in, in, in Australia, teaching um, courses are have easier entry scores, and maybe that was the reason, or maybe they didn't know what else to do. So we had this idea to transplant Teach for America here. It was really Noel Pearson's, the Aboriginal leader's idea, um, but he got me involved in it and we launched Teach for Australia and it's now going strong. It's more or less every state, not all of them, yeah. Um, and it is controversial because it's different uh, and, and it's not the normal work, but it's attracted the people into teaching who would be the most charismatic teachers that I've ever met and the most inspiring in it and people who wouldn't ordinarily have thought of going into teaching. So I, I believe that the personality, the dedication and the, the technique and style of a teacher can make an enormous difference on a person's life. Mm -hmm. Last question. What advice would you give to the younger Stephen Schwartz? And what would you say to aspiring senior leaders in the, in the sector? Um, well, let me try the second one first. Uh, I, once, I once was asked about that. What, what should a vice chancellor be doing with their time other than going to meetings and eating lots of dinners? And I can say that university, can think about your university as a kind of very delicate anti-crystal bowl. And you've, begin, you've been given the opportunity to carry that bowl across some very slippery corridors and very slippery stairs. And your job is not to drop the bowl. That's my advice to aspiring vice chancellor. Um, as far as for me, um, hmm, what advice would I have given to the younger me? Um, I guess I would say that it's great to be smart and it's learning should be respected, 
but it's probably just as important to be kind. I think that would be the advice. Probably should have got it a long time ago. <laughs> and in fact, I'm going to sneak in one last question, given that we started with libraries. What are you reading now? Oh, goodness, I belong to a book group and I'm just um, reading, I'm reading Clive James's 80 poems I've learned by heart. It's his last book just before he died. He was, had lost his vision. He wasn't able to see, but he can still recite his poems by heart. So he dictated the book. I'm, I'm currently reading that. I've always had a penchant for, for poetry. Mm -hmm. And what, what is it that thinking about that in our conversation that connects the converse, our conversation about transforming universities? And in fact, he transformed his life through loss, loss of vision. So what's the connection you made? Um, he did transform his life through Trust Vision, but he also went to Sydney University when Sydney University was a very different place um, from what it is now. And um, I think he always credited it with transforming his life, right. um, that Sydney University played an enormous part in his life. I have to say the same, you know, I, I, everything I have ever achieved in my life, and in fact, Claire, my wife as well, we were the first to go to university at our in our families, anything we've ever achieved is because of education and because of universities. Nothing would have been possible without them. Uh, and I feel very grateful that I had those opportunities. None of my forebears had those opportunities, and I'm very grateful that I did. And what a great way for us to uh, terminate our conversation. Stephen, it's been wonderful to catch up and this side of the, the country. Um, it will uh, uh, lunch. Yeah, well, I'll be here till December. So, is there any chance of catching up? Do you think before that? Um, I'm, going, I'm going to Queensland tomorrow yep. to warm up for the winter, but I'll come back. <laughs> um, I'm an old man. I got to warm up in the winter. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll contact you when I get back. That'd be fantastic. And, and once again, Stephen, um, that was a lovely conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, too, Judith. Travel safely. Bye. And, stay, and you, stay safe, please. Visit studiosity.com slash studentsfirst for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education. studiosity.com slash studentsfirst.